You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. The great theologian Augustine of Hippo once said that in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the new, the old is revealed. When we think of the messianic prophecies from this perspective, we see that the Old Testament whispers to us about the coming of the Messiah. Join us during our Advent sermon series titled Rumors of the Messiah, where we confirm the whispered prophecies of the Old Testament that told of the birth, suffering, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today's scripture comes from Isaiah 9, 1-7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. As we prepare to get into God's word together, would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word and for the the opportunity to gather together to be reminded of who we are and who you are and where we fit in your world and what you're doing here. We thank you for this season of Advent. And I pray this morning as we study this very famous passage, Lord, that your spirit would make the strange things familiar to us, but also the things that are very familiar to us, make them strange in a way that we hear them fresh, hear them new, the promises and the truth that you have for us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, for about 1,600 years, the church has set aside the four weeks leading up to Christmas as set aside for this season of Advent. The word Advent means to arrive, to come. And this season is about God's people both celebrating that Christ has come, but also looking and longing for the day he will come again. And so on Christmas morning, we have the joy and the anticipation, or the joy and the celebration uh, about Christ's birth. But Advent, the season as a whole, it's not just about Christmas. It's not just a warm-up to Christmas. Throughout history, it's been a time for God's people to learn how to wait and to long and to hope, not just that Christ has come, but that he is coming again. And so it's a time filled with desire and 
It's also a time which this can be strange if you've you've never really paid attention or seen this, but Advent is actually a time where in the church we don't just acknowledge the darkness in our world and in our lives. We actually stare it in the face. Um, it's not a sentimental season. It's a season in which we really we think about the big things and we think about the fact that Christ has come, but he's coming again. And right now we live in this in-between and there's a whole lot, a whole lot in the in-between, a whole lot of darkness. There's violence and there's ugliness. And so in this season, we're looking at different Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. And today we come to this very, very famous passage in Isaiah 9, great promises about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And I think many of us, we've learned to approach texts like these as if they're almost kind of those, you know, those word finder games where there's the jumble and you, you find the word and you circle it and it's diagonal or backwards or forwards. I think sometimes we can do that with passages like this, like, oh, I think there's a connection here. Or maybe this, oh, this is certainly about Jesus. And that's, that's not entirely wrong. Um, that's not wrong at all. But really, if we're actually, if we're willing to sit with this passage... It teaches us so much about hope. If we're willing to look at what this text said to the original audience before we look and say, what does it mean for us? It teaches us so much about the nature of biblical hope. And so we're going to explore this very famous passage by looking at three promises that are given in it. There's the promise of deep darkness. There's the promise of a dawning light. And then there's a promise of an endless Peace, And we're going to look at these three and ask, what do these teach us about the nature of biblical hope? Starting with the promise of deep darkness. Uh, most of what Lindsay read for us was filled with these wonderful, wonderful promises about Christ. But when you actually press into the text, you'll see that the context of Isaiah 9 is pretty bleak. Isaiah, he's a prophet. And he's speaking on behalf of God to Israel, to God's people. And most of what Isaiah has to say to God's people is pretty intense. If you sat down and read Isaiah's chapter 1 to 9, it's not filled with a bunch of encouragements. It's not like Isaiah saying, way to go, just keep at it, you guys are doing wonderful. Most of it's filled with some pretty hard, hard stuff. See, Isaiah, he lived about 250 years after David. And over the course of those two and a half centuries, Israel had a number of kings, and there were a few good ones. But generally speaking, most of the kings were not good men. It's like king after king came along, and they flaunted God's laws. They flaunted his commands. They neglected to care for widows and orphans. They took advantage of the poor. They... They made unholy alliances with foreign nations. I mean, God had made a covenant with them and said, you are my people and I'm your God, but they kept living like they were not his people. And so God sent these prophets saying, hey, stop it. Hey, remember who you are. Remember who I am. And God's people didn't listen. And so Isaiah has been sent by God to tell the Israelites that because of their stubborn persistent, ongoing rebellion, God was going to hand them over to their enemies. And if you flip to 2 Kings, 
You can actually read about these events, 2 Kings 15. In the time of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath, Pilazer, king of Assyria, came. There's a lot of names here, but he came and he took Ejon, Abel, Beth, Makkah, Genoa, Kadesh, and Hazor. He took Gilead and Galilee, including all the land of Naphtali, and he deported the people to Assyria. In that one verse is an awful lot of sorrow and darkness. Assyrians came into the land that God had promised his people, captured them, drug them away, and put them into slavery. Now, that's an important context because at the very end of Isaiah chapter 8, right before this very famous Christmas passage we read about what that day is going to look like, Isaiah says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they will turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. I mean, it's an intense and foreboding prophecy where Isaiah is telling God's people, it's going to get very, very dark for us. That's a word for us today to recognize that Advent always begins in darkness. Advent doesn't begin with, you know, have yourself a merry little Christmas, or chestnuts roasting by an open fire. Advent begins with songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. It's exactly what this passage is about. Advent begins by recognizing in chapter 9 that we walk in darkness. That as people, we walk in darkness. What you'll see, this is an essential part of true biblical hope. You know, when you study the prophets of the Old Testament, hope, it's always held in tension with judgment. And that's actually one of the disorienting things. If you've ever read Isaiah or Jeremiah, you're going through it, and it's like, this is a wonderful passage. This is a scary passage. This is wonderful. This is so intense. They're always held in tension together. Light and darkness, hope and judgment. If we're going to be a people who really understand and walk in biblical hope, we have to recognize that, one, it starts recognizing the darkness, and that, two, biblical hope, it's, it's not optimism. It's not the same thing as optimism. You know, I heard a preacher recently say, should Christians, should we be optimists or pessimists in the here and now? What does it mean to be an optimist? It means you look at circumstances, events, you know, all the factors, and you see how they could lead to a great outcome, right? And to be a pessimist is you look at the circumstances and all the factors, and you see how it could lead to a pretty hard outcome. So as Christians, should we be optimists or pessimists? Well, neither, right? Like, we can't be pessimists because we know God is in charge. But we also, here and now, as we wait for God to fulfill his promises, we also know the world is filled with a lot of darkness. It's filled with violence and oppression and 
slavery and ugliness and hatred and broken relationships. Biblical hope, it's always given against the backdrop of darkness. And this this is what fills so many of the pages of the Old Testament, if you've read it. It's darkness. Recently on social media, someone had posted something and got reposted. It was a young atheist uh, who had just started actually reading the Bible. He'd kind of been dismantling Christianity, but decided to read the Bible. And he was reading the Old Testament. And he said something like, have any of you Christians actually read the Old Testament? It's so ugly and violent and dark. And there's wars and there's genocide and there's murder all over the place. Have any of you read this? And I said, well, of course there is. I didn't actually post it because I don't do that kind of thing. But of course there is. Why? Because the Bible speaks to reality. You know, what I wanted to post was, have you studied human history? It's filled with wars and violence and genocide and hatred and oppression and slavery and darkness and people abusing and mistreating one another again and again and again, century after century after century. And we have this myth about progress. Meanwhile, the last century, the 20th century, was by far the bloodiest century in human history, filled with tyrants and holocausts. People brought into slavery and murdered. I mean, there is a list, the top 20 dictators of the 20th century. Just the top 20, and you go down the list, you have Mussolini and Stalin and Hitler. See, the Bible, it speaks honestly about the human condition. And I think one of the reasons people struggle with the Bible is because it's too honest and it's too human. We like to think, especially where we live, that you know, things are safe, people are generally good, and things work out well, but most of human history, the darkness has been front and center. It's one of the things that I've always loved about God's word is it, it, it not just testifies to the darkness, it explains it. That as human beings, as creatures, we've turned against our creator. We sought to put ourselves in his place. And chaos has ensued. It would be like every planet saying, you know what? I know the sun wants to be the sun, but I think I'd make a good sun. Imagine what would happen to the solar system. Planets colliding. You see, the, the Bible, it, it gives us categories to make sense of the darkness. To make sense of a guy driving an SUV into a Christmas parade or parents buying their 15-year-old a gun. And two days later, he goes into his high school and he shoots it up. The Bible helps us understand that. This myth that people are generally good, that doesn't help us. The Bible helps us saying, yes, the world is filled with darkness. And it doesn't make those things less tragic. In many ways, it makes it more tragic because it shows how far... We have fallen. See, hope in the Bible, it doesn't require us to bury our heads in the sand and deny the darkness. Hope in the Bible actually requires us to be honest about it. That's why so many of the songs we sing during Advent are moody and contemplative. If you've ever noticed that, it's like, I want something joyful and cheery. And we come in and everything here is in a minor key and it's kind of loud or it's... That's, that's part of the point of Advent. 
Advent is recognizing that much of life is lived in the minor key. So the first element of biblical hope is honesty. Promise of deep darkness. Before we move on, I, I want to say that Christmas, I know it's a very hard season for many people. We all, for some reason, I don't know why, I think it's Hollywood or the movies or something, we all think it's supposed to be this season filled with nothing but joy and peace and happiness, and for some of you it is, and praise God for that. Drink it up, enjoy every minute, but for a lot of people, Christmas is a hard time. It's a, it's a time where you recognize and remember loss, loss of loved ones, loss of friends, maybe lost through a divorce. Maybe it's a loss of relationships. In this divisive age, I've heard from so many people that at Thanksgiving, family members who always gathered couldn't even be in the same room anymore. Christmas can be a time filled with lament, lamenting what your family once was, or maybe lamenting what your family never was. And I say this to say that the season of Advent, it actually creates space for you to be honest about it. There's this like notion as Christians that we're supposed to act like, no, it's wonderful. I love to go visit my family, let's say. Or yeah, I love this. And you probably don't because there's probably a lot of pain and heartache and conflict. And Advent actually enables us to go to God and be honest about that and say, Lord, there's a lot of brokenness and a lot of pain. See, biblical hope... It's always honest. And if you're in this Christmas season and you feel like you don't have the spirit of the season because there's a lot of pain and sorrow, that's okay. You've got the season of Advent. Biblical hope requires honesty. That's the starting point, but it's never the end. And that gets to the second promise, the promise of a dawning light. So we get this dark, dark passage about People staring, shaking their fists at God and staring at the earth and being filled with hunger. And then there's this one so important, but little so important word, nevertheless, God says. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Isaiah's telling the people, even though the day is coming where God's gonna turn off the lights, and judgment's gonna come and we're gonna be taken away, here in chapter 9, he's looking to an even further future, and he's saying, but it's not going to last forever. There's going to be a lot of darkness and pain, but it's not going to last forever. Eventually, God is going to turn back on the lights. And in the Bible, what we see is we can be honest about the darkness, but we also have to recognize that in God's word, God never lets the darkness have a final say. The darkness never gets to have the final say. And so Isaiah is saying, listen, people, the lights one day are going to come back on. And then you get to verse 3, and Isaiah moves from speaking 
to the people to actually speaking directly to God. And it's almost as if Isaiah has been given this vision of what God's going to do in the future. And it's so overtaken him that he just starts singing and praising to God and lets us listen in. He cries out, you, he's looking to the future, remember? God, you, you've enlarged the nation. And if you, you've increased their joy, they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. You plant and you wait for months and months and months, and then the harvest comes in, and you know that you're going to be well fed and your family's going to be cared for, it, and you celebrate and throw these parties. That's the celebration that Isaiah has. They're going to rejoice like harvest day, or they're going to rejoice as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. You would conquer evil people, take their land, and you'd look at all their riches. He's saying that's the day, like soldiers kind of throwing up the gold coins or pirates, you know, just throw, look at what we have. That's the joy he sees. There's going to be laughter and feasting and celebration. Isaiah continues, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. You know, yoke was a a wooden beam that you would put over a livestock, a cow or an ox, and you'd put the plow behind it and they'd pull it. It was a heavy, hard thing. And yoke in the Bible is a symbol of slavery, especially in the Old Testament. And God is saying through Isaiah that even though there's going to come a time of captivity to the Assyrians, God will eventually shatter that yoke and will set his people free just like he did in the day of Midian's defeat. Which, if you're not familiar with that, it's from the book of Judges. It's a time in Israel's history when God's people were living under the oppression of the Midianites, and uh, God, there was a big army that was going to fight. God took the number of the army from 32,000 down to 300 to show everyone that the victory was from him. And Isaiah is saying, that amazing victory in the past, you're going to do it again. And then in verse 5, he says that every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. They will be fuel for the fire. And that seems like a really violent image, but it's not at all. It's basically saying all of the soldiers' uniforms and their boots that are caked in blood and mud and everything else, they're not going to need them anymore. Don't need the boots, don't need the weapons, don't need the uniforms. And they're all going to be gathered together and thrown in a bonfire to erase them and their memory from the face of the earth. So Isaiah's given this promise, and (laughs) I don't know why I'm laughing, maybe because it's so similar to life at times, but imagine being one of Isaiah's original hearers. He's preaching, he's going along. And he's saying, listen, we're going to be invaded. Mexico, let's say for us, like they're going to come up, they're going to take us all captive. We're going to be escorted out of our land. Darkness is going to cover the land. But it's not going to last forever. 
And then he goes like one second saying that to the next saying, actually the day is coming when the nation's going to be increased. There's going to be all kinds of joy and celebration that we're not even going to fight in wars anymore. Imagine being one of the Israelites. You'd be saying, okay, when? When is that going to happen? Is it like a week after they take us captive? A month after they take us captive? Like when, when does the good times come? And what, what should we be looking for? How can we prepare ourselves for this? And in verse 6, Isaiah says that all of this incredible stuff is going to happen. Why? Well, to, for us, for to us, a child is born. And to us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. How's God going to turn the lights back on? It's going to come through a child, a son who's born. The government, that word could also be translated the rule, the reign. This child's going to be born and he's going to have this reign that he's carrying. And he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is a therapist. Uh, although he in many ways was. But counselor here, it's actually a word used to talk of strategy and war and politics. It's a military term. It means that he's going to be a wonderful king. He's going to be mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace, this child. We, we're going to talk more about some of these promises in the coming weeks but today, as we're talking about what does it mean to be a people of hope, well, one, it means that we can be honest about the dark, but two, biblical hope means that we know and trust and cling to God's goodness and his promises. That yes, God is going to bring judgment and allow for the darkness, but that's not who he is at his core. That's why you see in the prophets, they're, they're warning and saying, turn, 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 and people refuse to turn. Okay, judgment's coming, but the judgment's not going to have the last say because our God, at the very essence of who he is, is not judgment. It's love. God is love. And that love leads him to do works of judgment. But even Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 28 he actually describes God's judgment and his wrath as his strange work, his alien work. God's right-handed and his judgment and wrath, that's him using his left hand. It's a secondary work that serves to advance the greater goal of his glory, the good of his people, and his creation. And he's good, and he's in control, and he's, never, he's promised to never let the darkness win. And so if you're here and you're feeling that darkness, you know, some of you, you are, you tend more towards the optimism. You're like, man, this is kind of a downer of a Christmas sermon. Like, just tell me about the manger, the animals, and like the great light and the angels. I want to hear that part. Others of you are like, yes, yes, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the darkness. And if that's you, it's really easy at times when you feel the weight of that to let that shade how we think about God, right? 
You feel the weight of the darkness, and then you kind of just think, well, what does that say about God? And what this passage tells us is that he's a God who, who rules over the darkness and actually even brings the darkness sometimes in judgment, but that's not ultimately who he is. That God, God is not ultimately a cosmic boogeyman who's out to get us, who's out to, you know, find anywhere we trip up, any mistake we make, and then smash down on us. That's not who he is. I mean, it's so interesting. Centuries of God's people just rebelling, flaunting God's laws, basically just turning their back on him again and again and again, laughing about it while they're doing it. God says, okay, judgment's coming, but it's not the final word. It's so interesting to me that Isaiah, he doesn't say, for a child will be born and a son will arrive. He says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Martin Luther, he once said that the incarnation is proof that God is not against us. So biblical hope, it, one, we, we're honest about the darkness, but two, we're, we recognize and we trust in the goodness of God. And so many Christians I know, they still live under the suspicion that God is out to get them. They still live with this feeling that, like, when God finally gets his way, he's going to smash them into the dust and just grind their nose in the dirt. And what we see here is that God's posture, even in judgment, is a promise of love and redemption. And Christian, God is not against you. He moved heaven and earth to draw near to you. And through the birth of Jesus, he's shown the depths he will go to rescue and redeem his people. So the nature of hope is honesty. It's also trust. And then the, the third promise, the promise of the endless peace, it teaches us something too. Verse 7, we're told that this child is going to be born of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Think about that. Think of that promise. What does that mean? What does that tell us about this king? If he's going to reign on the throne forever, it means he's, he's not like us, right? <laughs> he's immortal. He's eternal. What's so interesting is you fast forward 700 years and all of these strange, hard to pronounce names, Naphtali and Galilee, and we see that Jesus was born to a family from Nazareth in Galilee. For 30 years, he lived in obscurity. When his time came for him to begin his public ministry, he was baptized by his cousin and then immediately was driven into the wilderness. You want to talk about darkness for 40 days to be tempted and tried by the evil one? And Matthew, and Matthew 4 tells us that immediately after coming 
out back out of the wilderness, immediately after re-engaging in the world. He learns that his cousin John has been thrown into prison. Matthew 4, verse 13, we're told that leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The place Jesus began his public ministry was also the place of one of the darkest moments in the history of God's people. When the Assyrians, that's where they rolled in and took them all away. And then Jesus shows up and he starts to do his ministry there. And for people with eyes to see, they would hear him talk about the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn. Now is the time. And he was doing it. And you know, they didn't have Netflix They didn't have video games. The Israelites grew up with nothing but the Torah and they would read it and study it and memorize it. And so when they would watch Jesus doing his works in the region of Naphtali or Zebulun, there were those who had eyes to see to say, here he is, here he is. Here's the one that was promised to us. And they would watch him and He would heal people who were hurting. I mean, one way to think about Jesus' ministry, like he declared he is the light of the world, but what was he doing? He was constantly turning lights on where there was darkness. There's the darkness of hunger, and he would feed people. There was the darkness of illness or disability, and he would bring healing. There was the darkness of demonic possession, and he would turn on the lights of liberation. And so he did all of this. Everyone got so excited. Finally, this king that we've heard about, he's here. And then he dies on a cross. And this gets us right into the thick of Advent. I thought this king was going to reign and rule forever. I mean, this is why many people wanted to put him to death. They thought he was going to, you know, muster up this great army and overthrow the new big bad guys of the day in the neighborhood, the Romans. One of his disciples pulls out a sword and he's like, put it away. But they're arresting you. Put, Peter, put it away. See, the... The good news of Advent is that God has drawn near. The hard news of Advent is that his work, it isn't finished. The hard news of Advent is we look at Isaiah 9, and I'll ask you, did Jesus fulfill all of these promises? Have they all been fully fulfilled? It's hard for us to say, but not yet, right? Like wars are still going on, blood is still being spilled, darkness still inhabits the land. So Jesus has come and he he certainly has, in some sense, he's brought light, he's brought salvation, he's shattered the yoke of our sin, he's brought joy to the world, but, but wars still rage and darkness still envelops us. 
And that's the meaning of Advent. Advent's learning to wait in that place. Wait with honesty, wait with trust, but also wait with a lot of humility. We need to be humble about what we claim to know about God. We cling to his word with confidence, but we also need humility. I mean, think about the Israelites, the promise, you're going to be enslaved, but then the lights are, darkness is going to come, but then God's going to turn the lights back on. And then you, the Syrians roll in and you're like, well, he told us this was going to happen. Your kids are asking, how long is this going to be? Don't worry, he made a promise. And then you grew old and you told your kids and your grandkids, you'd have them, I know it's so hard right now, but here's what our God has promised us. And then that little kid would grow up and have kids and then grandkids and put their grandkid on the knee. I know this is hard that we're living in this foreign land and we're living as slaves, but God's made a promise to us generation after generation after generation and then 700 years, that's the time span from God making the promise that he would turn the lights back on to Jesus being born. It was about 700 years. God, he does not move according to our timeline. He moves at his own pace. And he rarely acts how we think he should act. That's why they crucified Jesus. He was the promised king, the promised warrior king who refused to wield a sword. See, people didn't understand that. They didn't understand, like, come on, we want the might and the power. We want you to flex. We want you to fix all this here and now. Why didn't he? Well, a lot of it's mysterious, but here's one thing we do know, that if God came with might and power in judgment and wrath, he could have wiped out all of his enemies in an instant, snap of a finger. But in doing so, he would have wiped out all of us. And so he came as a child, not, not to damn us, not to conquer us, but to save us. He came as a baby, you know, the most non-threatening thing on the face of the planet, so that we could approach him. That means that we can still approach him today while we wait, while we long for the promises to be fulfilled. You know, there's a sense, like 700 years they waited. Man, how hard must that have been? Well, the heart of the Christian faith is not just, it's not just believing some things and then waiting until God comes through on his promises. It's actually knowing God in the midst of the waiting. You, you can have the promises that are far off, but the heart of our faith is that we can also know God while we wait. And I would actually say that the waiting, it really sifts us of who we really are, of what we really love, what we desire. You know, living in that tension of, He's come and he's coming again and we've got the great promise. We have the vision. We've talked about hope, you know, the last several weeks actually of what God's going to do, but we also live on this earth where it's hard to even turn on the news anymore. <laughs> what do we do in the meantime? Well, well that, that waiting actually it trains our desires and our longings for him. And so 
In this season of Advent, I want to invite you into a place of honesty, being honest with God and with yourself, maybe with your spouse, maybe with good friends, maybe with your community group. You don't have to deny the pain, what's hard. You don't have to sugarcoat the things. You can be honest, but I also encourage you to cling to the promises. And that living in that in-between space, man, that's when God does some of his most beautiful and powerful work in us. And so Amy and Lindsay talked. We put together this Advent guide. I encourage you, if you don't have something else, dive into this. This is what it's all about. How do we learn to wait on our good and glorious God as frail human beings who struggle in so many ways? I encourage you, as we move to the Lord's table, this right here, it's, it's a gift that Jesus gave us. It's visible proof of what Luther said. This is proof that God is not against us, even in the face of the darkness. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus took a loaf of bread and broke it. He said, this is my body that's broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood of the new covenant that's poured out for you. And he encouraged us as his people that as often as we gather to do this in remembrance of him while we wait for his return. And so part of us waiting, part of what we're doing here is exactly what we just talked about. It's it's clinging to the promises. It's acknowledging the darkness that our sin so big forced the Son of God onto the cross, but also our God is so good that he willingly went there and his body was broken and his blood was shed. And so we feed on this knowing and growing and hope and trust in the goodness of our God. And it's to that end that I want to invite you to pray with me. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.